This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast, an iHeartRadio and Dan Patrick Podcast Network production. I'm Alan Nevins. And I'm Joey Santos. And today we're going to talk about legacies and Hollywood estates, what it means to represent them and how they work. Not Hollywood estates that you live in, not homes, but actual, you know, dead people things. Yes, dead people estates. What happens, <laughs> to, what happens to money and, uh, and, and the and intellectual property of those that were famous and, and once alive. And once alive. So we're also going to talk about legacies, which is really important because we all have one. And how you protect that and how you keep it going. Family legacies. Family legacies, absolutely. Yes, which is why in today's show, we are going to talk about family legacies. And as our guests, we have Sean and Emma Ferrer. He is the eldest son, and she is the granddaughter of the iconic Audrey Hepburn. So let's grab a drink. Or two. And dive in. So, Joey, what is our cocktail today to honor Sean and Emma? I thought it'd be nice because it's so iconic about um, Tiffany's, you know, breakfast at Tiffany's. So I made the drink and I called it breakfast at Tiffany's. And it's champagne, sort of like, you know, you'd have a mimosa in the morning (laughs) or just a glass of champagne in the morning. Or so I I thought the orange juice uh, is such a waste of space. It's a waste of space. So what I did was (laughs) I used, you know, always have to use a great champagne. But in this particular case, I did a Veuve Clicquot. And then just with a, a little hint of a blue curacao to give it that light blue Tiffany color or, you know, reminiscent of. With Tiffany and then box. I just, Tiffany box. Yeah. yeah. And then I added a couple of blueberries just to signify maybe a sapphire or two. Oh, well, it's interesting because look, the book that one of the little books we're going to talk about color? today has the exact same blue. Yeah. Yeah. The Tiffany blue. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite. I love that. Little blue box. Yeah. Everybody loves getting a little blue box no matter what's inside it. Yeah. I don't mind a little red box too. <laughs> Cartier one is pretty nice. <laughs> I'll take any box. I'll take a cardboard box. <laughs> Shit, as long as there's something in hey, it. I get excited when Amazon shows up with a box at <laughs> the door. Seriously. It's like Christmas. What? Ha, tell me, so how was your week? Well, I'm back at work, you know, so that's, that's good after the holidays because you sort of get that laziness going on. So now I've... Brought myself back to that everyday thing, right. so which is good. I'm happy about that. And um, that's it, energized and ready to get on with it. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I had to hit the ground running. You know, I, over the holidays, I did nothing or as little as possible. I only, you know, I have a few clients that were working, so I had to check in on that. But for the most part, you know, I put the notice up and said, don't bother me for two weeks. It's the only two weeks I get to yeah. not have to work. 
And so I did very minimal. You know, now we've been in for into it for a few weeks. And uh, but you know, I can't those emails just don't stop. And uh, it's all good. <laughs> the thorn in your side. The thorn in my side. I think when I'm we call you Hillary from now on. <laughs> the email person. The email. The email. <laughs> yeah, if I got to 30,000 emails, I probably would delete them all too. Yeah. Because I would be like, okay, let's just get rid of them all and we'll start fresh. They'll resend them if they need some. Yeah. And I have that. I'm claustrophobic anyway. So anything, you know, like too many things, like hoarders or whatever would drive me insane. I can't, I can't even watch that show without, you know, going into some sort of a panic attack and then having to clean my house, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 20 times over again. To so make sure you haven't saved enough. any old newspapers. Yeah, Gotta some go. some cat under the cushion of my couch, some dead cardboard cat at this point. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about legacies because Sean and Emma have quite a legacy in their family. Sean is the eldest son of Audrey Hepburn and Emma being his daughter, the granddaughter of Audrey Hepburn. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that he's done it with such care and love, and that, that says a lot. Well, you know, listen, when you represent estates, and, you know, my company represents quite a few estates, I think this is maybe our sixth book that Sean and I have done together. I'd have to think back. It's the sixth or seventh, maybe. But I've also represented, I did a book about The Doors, the music group The Doors, mm -hmm. which is an estate, technically is an estate today. We represent the estate of George Axelrod, which I absolutely adore this estate. George was the original playwright for Seven Year Itch on Broadway, which of course was a huge hit. Yeah. At the time that it came out, it said a lot of things about the mores in America at that time. Of course, then it went on to become a movie with Marilyn Monroe, which really blew it up. And that image, that, that iconic image of her over the subway grade. Right, exactly. And of course, now Seven Year Itch has become part of the vernacular of, you know, of, of English. People use that, always got the Seven Year Itch. And I get it every two years. <laughs> seven, nine, 11, 13. Well, it's just a little dry patch. <laughs> Itches. So George had written quite a few. First of all, he wrote, he was also the screenwriter for The Manchurian Candidate and a bunch of you know other films that were absolutely huge. But the things that he did originally have gone on, the plays that he written, and we still we still promote these things today. And of course, the seven-year itch, despite its iconic name, is a little out of date as far as the mores that it's talking about, because mm -hmm. the story is, of course, about you know a husband and wife, and she goes out of town for the weekend, and he has a little fling with this character that lives Who's above his neighbor, them. I believe. Yeah, it's his yeah. neighbor. And it brings up all sort of the ideas of infidelity and what's going on in their marriage, and it, and it analyzes them. And we've actually got something going now. We have a, a, a play in development on an idea that I came up with. I won't tell you what it is because I don't want to give it away, but we've switched it around a little bit to make it much more modern. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. And, so what's it called, uh, a seven-year bitch? Yeah. <laughs> the seven-year twitch. No, <laughs> we get to use the title since we own the play. It's the seven-year itch. But uh, and it'll be a musical. It's a musical. Oh, As interesting. A, yeah. To make, it, you know, to make it a little more fun and, yeah. and bring it up to date. And, oh, interesting. Uh, but, you know, to keep these legacies alive, you have to be very genuine. Sean has to, he turns down things that really his mother, they don't represent her mm -hmm. or it's not who she was. 
He tries to keep it very straightforward that this is what his mother believed. And if he's going to do something, it has to always be towards those aims of things that she felt. When you have an iconic person like that, that the world has fallen in love with, you have to keep that image alive of who she really was. Yes, and integrity. And of the person, because obviously that's, you know, she exuded that. I mean, and she walked that talk. So now she absolutely stood behind everything that she she mm-hmm. felt, and we'll ask him when when he and Emma come on. We can ask a little bit about the first book that he brought to me, which was called Audrey and Elegant Spirit. It was a beautiful book, and we'll talk a little about that with him. But more recently, you know, he did a children's book, but we also did this great book called Pocket Audrey. Hepburn Wisdom. It's a little series of books that this UK publisher does. And it's usually, you know, a hundred great quotes or something from the person. And each page is his own little quote and it's a cute little pocket. And that's done in the Tiffany Blue as well. It's done in the Tiffany Blue that we were talking about earlier. And I found one of the quotes in this book says, I had to make a choice at one point in my life of missing films or missing my children. And then the second quote that followed it, it was a very easy decision to make because I missed my children so very much. I may not always be offered work, but I will always have my family. And as we know, this is an unusual decision in Hollywood. People try to juggle both. Well, some people aren't cut out for parenting. And, you know, show business isn't exactly the best career to raise a family in or through or from. Some people are successful at it and others aren't because you're an artist. There's ego and there's so many other things pulling at you. And, you know, children need constant attention and they need, you know, guidance and, and strength. And, you know. But you and I both have friends where they, you know, they had very famous parents and the kids either turned out okay, much like yourself. That's on the okay scale. <laughs> but because the family the the celebrity knew when the family came first and put their foot down and said no i have a family thing whereas we have some other friends where the kids always came second yeah well, well my, it didn't mean case, they lo- loved them any less but they did not make them the priority with the correct. career was like oh no i have to take this film i can't stay here in town with you because i have a film yeah in my case with my father being an actor and he took us with him. I mean, he incorporated that the family was important to him. He was very much about family. Now, he was also an actor. He also had a lot of those demons that a lot of artists carry. And there's a selfish part and there's an ego part. So where the dysfunction came in or where the function came into the dysfunction was my mother had her shit together and she could sort of take take that off of him and then do the work that he didn't have time to do or couldn't concentrate on doing. Because it, it, it's a full-time gig being a parent, too. So my mother was able to do all that stuff while my father was off being an actor and studying and traveling and doing all the cuckoo stuff that comes along with that. A lot of time, there's some cuckoo attached to that. So she saved us from all that stuff. And then as you grow up and you're able to have that reasoning, um, you can see it for what it is and you develop your relationship around it. And at the end of it all, you know, as you grow up and my father and I became very close and had a wonderful relationship, but you also had to let people be who they are too. And thank God I got that lesson early on. So I didn't carry, you know, any bitterness or I didn't write some shitty book or, or do something that would have 
not done him proud. But you kept up your family's legacy in a similar way. I mean, some people have families who, you know, owned vineyards, right? And now they they still, the grandchildren still run that vineyard. You had a grandmother who had nightclubs and restaurants, and you and your brother carried that on. Yeah, I think you pay an homage. You know, we when we were able to, we opened up a restaurant, uh, and I ran it. My brother... Uh, created it and as an homage to my grandmother and her legacy and and uh, my parents met at my grandmother's restaurant in Havana Cuba at the time was a big uh, playground for the rich and famous and and so everybody partied and carried on there and my mother and her sisters were showgirls at my grand one of my grandmother's nightclubs my father would go there to party he met her fell in love you know he wound up getting my mother's whole family out of Cuba at the you know the Castro takeover and and my grandmother made that happen, set everybody up with jobs and apartments in New York. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of decency that came out of these people, too, and the things that they did to, you know, create this legacy. You know? Right. So I'm yeah. proud of a lot of that stuff. So No, and we all carry the legacy in a different way. I don't have that kind of family legacy, but I do realize that I do certain things that somehow – uh, instill that legacy feeling. You know, my my grandmother was Italian, of course, and I've always, as you know, I'm drawn to Italy. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. I go there. I prefer going there than I do to France or any of these other places yeah. that I find as beautiful, as wonderful, but for some reason- There's I'm, a reflection there. Yeah, I'm driven to Italy and, you know, I, I've learned the Italian language a little bit. My grandmother would be thrilled. And, you know, that's a little bit of my carrying on that legacy in a different way. You know, my father used was an entrepreneur, and I guess maybe in some ways I'm an entrepreneur because mm -hmm. they, you know, my business has done a lot of different things. My yeah. father would start businesses and sell them, so he didn't have sort of one business that we kept going throughout the family. Yeah. Although he desperately really wanted me to take over the store in Mammoth, he would have loved that I had chosen I to go in. I can't see there. you as Mr. Drucker. Though. No, I'm, I would not have been a good Mr. No. Drucker. No. <laughs> You're more like Lisa Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> I get allergic smelling, hey, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the other legacy that um, is interesting to talk about is is your uh, whole relationship with Swifty Lazar, Irving. Yes, and by the way, that's a legacy I'm very honored and very proud to carry forward. You know, he and his, and especially his wife, uh, were very good to me. They completely changed my life. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud to always say that I worked with Irving Lazar, taught me so much. Almost all of his clients stayed with me after he passed away. And which, you know, was, it was made me feel good, but it, but it also meant that he had taught me well mm -hmm. and that Mary had taught me well. Yeah. I'm sure Sean will want to talk about it a little bit because I, sure. met, I met Sean because Irving had made a deal, a book deal, a multi-million dollar book deal for Audrey Hepburn. While I was working for Swifty, it was a huge deal. And the contracts came and we negotiated the contract and he sent it off to Audrey to sign and she never signed, never signed, never signed. And he couldn't understand, like, well, why isn't she signing this contract? And of course, then the announcement came that she was very ill. And it was quite clear why she never signed it. She did not want to tell him before other people knew that she was ill. So she sort of let him proceed 
otherwise she would have had to tell him and then the news would have gotten out before the family would have liked it out. Yeah. So uh, we sat on this contract for many months and then, of course, this terrible news came that she wasn't going to make it and she had this very rare form of cancer. Uh, and I, But I have that contract in my files today. I kept it because it was, you know, it's it's a little bit of history and it's too bad because it, that would have been a fascinating memoir to read of Audrey's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, you know, they had that auction just a few years ago. You know, Luca, whose book I also did, he did a book called um, Audrey at Home. And that estate has gone through some changes, of course, but I remember going down to the warehouse one day because he and his brother decided they needed to go through all the stuff that was in storage. And it was a massive, it was like a 2,500 square foot storage facility, just filled with trophies and the Academy Awards that she won and and artwork. And in fact, Sean gave me this beautiful, massive poster, which is hanging in Mammoth, was given to her by the director of a movie you know, that was when it was an estate. Since then, they've, in essence, dissolved the estate a little bit. I may I may be representing it slightly different. But for many years, uh, all the money that came from the books went to the estate of Audrey, which was all money that was donated to mm-hmm. UNICEF. But uh, but they still do the great work, and, you know, they still give money to charity, and they carry on all of those things that his mom was very passionate yeah. about. So when you say you represent estates, what exactly does that mean? Because, I mean, it sounds peculiar for some people, I would think. Yeah, how do you represent how the dead represent- person? Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, it is quite interesting because in many cases, you know, as we were speaking, you're trying to uphold that that person's image, image uh, to keep it going, to monetize it. And in many cases, interestingly enough, you know, in many cases, the estate, the money does go to charity, doesn't necessarily go to the family. Yeah. And in many cases, it's interesting because a lot of these estates, they're richer dead than alive. Yes, look at the Michael Jackson and estate. Houston and Yeah, you know why? Because people sort of rally around and, of course, the spending stops. You know, It wasn't a cheap thing to move Michael Jackson around the world. It was a very expensive proposition. So a lot of those were you know, money losing oh, in some ways. But you know, once he's gone and the, the income continues, but the expenses have, have gone, gone down, down drastically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And there's other estates like that. You know, we represent some in in different ways. Like sometimes we only represent the literary prospects of an estate, such as Arthur Rubenstein. You know, we represent the books that he wrote, and they were both out of print, and our company decided to put them back in print. And to our great dismay, these books are selling very well. That's fantastic. So, you know, estates can be wildly successful. They can be badly run, of course, like anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, one has to be very careful to keep the estate genuine. Yeah. You have to remember, why was the person famous and why did people love them? And if you start to what change that- What was the that, attraction? Yeah, what was you the attraction? If you start it. to change that, you're going to ruin the it. estate. Yep. So yeah, I'm excited to, to talk to Emma today. I haven't seen her for, what, since 17, at least three years, I think. God, has it been that long? Isn't yeah. it amazing how time flies? Yeah, she and I had returned from Tokyo. Yeah, we were in. Well, actually, we went more than Tokyo. We were in a couple cities in Kyoto. In Kyoto. Yeah. Oh, you remember? Of course, I remember yeah. everything. But yes, we had just returned, and and of course, she jumped into the scene when she did the cover of uh, Harper's Bazaar, the French cover of Harper's Bazaar. It sold oh, more yeah. copies than any other version. Well, Emma's got a quite a big following in Japan too, but Audrey, I mean. Audrey's massive in massive Japan. Massive in Japan. Yeah. yeah. So no. that'll be fun to catch up with her. And 
again with Sean, with her dad. So yeah. I haven't seen him since Italy when he came over He's and cooked great. us a beautiful dinner. I always got to throw food in there. That's just me. I know. That's how, you, that's how you check on your dates. That's a- what did I feed them? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about calendar dates, aren't you? I am. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> the ones that are on trees, those dates? Those dates. I haven't dated in quite some time. I'm a happily married man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh... <laughs> what do you mean, mm-hmm? Oh, no, I'm not, I'm just... You were I'm, at my wedding. I'm not disagreeing with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's move on to the figs. I mean, dates. To the dates. <laughs> I don't remember what I was saying. I don't either. So... Coming up, we have the son and granddaughter of Audrey Hepburn joining the conversation, Sean and Emma Ferrer. We'll be right back. So at the beginning of each show, we start with a cocktail of the day. It's what keeps us going. (laughs) So he creates these cocktails based on who our guest is. So I'm going to let him tell you what our cocktail of the day is today to honor you two. Please. Well, uh, I came up with a breakfast at Tiffany's. So it's, oh, why is it blue? Oh my God, I, I know. know. It's uh, champagne, always a good champagne. This one is Vouv and a little bit of a blue curacao and then some blueberries to symbolize the sapphires. So there you uh, go. Cheers lovely. and good morning for us. Cheers. <laughs> Mazel <tov. laughs> Cheers. So today's theme is legacies, and we thought you'd be the appropriate guest for this because your family, Sean, and now Emma, has carried the torch for your mother very well and in a very elegant and prestigious way. The documentary is out, Audrey, More Than an Icon, which I thought was quite interesting. It was very different than I expected. And we have questions about other things going on in your life. But the first thing I really wanted to know is, you know, the documentary comes off as very genuine because it's a lot of family and friends and people who actually knew Audrey speaking about your mother, Sean. But there was a couple people on the show that didn't know your mom. And I was curious as to whether you had approved some of the things that they had said. When uh, Nick Tausig, the owner of um, Salon Films, uh, approached me a few years ago, And I was in the midst of organizing and planning uh, the Intimate Audrey exhibition, which, uh, just as a segue, is an exhibition that is completely uh, deprived of any Hollywood glitter, if you may. It's only about the woman. The idea is we opened it in Brussels, which is her birth town, then went on to Amsterdam, all the places that she was during her youth and the war. And therefore, the idea was to bring back the woman without all of the Hollywood accoutrements. So when he approached me to do this documentary and described their intent, um, it seemed like a perfect fit in this sort of 90-year celebration, which was actually in May of uh, 2019, which is when we opened the exhibition, and sort of started the decade of what would have been her 90th birthday. So. Uh, I felt that it was very much in line with what I saw, at least, uh, as far as where to go with sharing the story. At the same time, I didn't want to hold neither the writer, the director, or anybody else's hand. It was important, I think, to let them do what 
they had in their mind's eye. You know, I've always told them what I thought. Uh, no, I did not want to be the one to sort of muzzle them in any way. If they wanted to use someone who's a historical expert or, or the French woman who made a beautiful documentary or wrote a book in her own right, then so be it. This is not an exercise in Hollywood control. This is an exercise in trying to get to the truth. Well, that was a little bit of my question because there is the biographer you're you're talking about. And I didn't know from that biography, did she ever speak to your mom or did she just gather information from other people? Because she set the stage for a certain part of this documentary for its tone and its sadness. And I wondered from what expertise she was coming from other than she'd done research on your mom. She, she did research and obviously that's the way she interpreted it. You know, it takes a perspective of everyone to create a complete, beautiful, kaleidoscopical view of who this woman was. No, I agree. And by the way, it changed my mind a little bit about who your mom was. It actually, I mean, not that you could like her even more, but it made me admire her more as the person and as the woman that she grew to be. And I did find it, you know, in parts, I found it quite sad. And in fact, Emma, all I could think about is if you could hold on to that scene where you talk about how sad it is that she loved so many and didn't get the love in return in the same way. And I actually had tears roll down my eyes. I'll admit it. <laughs> I mean, I, I've gotten a lot of people have, have reached out to say a similar thing. And if I can just piggyback on what my dad said, because Clémence, the biographer of Audrey, was a friend of mine. Uh, I'm not sure if, Dad, you know her, but I, I was the one that put Helena, the documentary director, in touch with Clémence. Because, you know, I know she has this prolific background researching Audrey, but I think that I think that what my dad says is true. Of course, she's perceiving Audrey's history from her own experience lived. But I think that that's what's kind of magical about Audrey. And that's what I'm learning, especially through this documentary and everyone reaching out and saying, this is what they're going through in their life right now. And this is why they related to her story. And everyone kind of takes home a very personalized message from what Audrey lived. And I think that, you know, that's kind of an answer to what, you know, for, to the answer of the question of what we've been wondering all along, which is why she still is relevant and why people can relate to her. And I think everyone can kind of uh, pick up on something that's personal. Yeah, well, there's so, there's so few, and I, I was mentioning that to Alan too, there's so few that can transcend all the ages, you know, so young people today, I mean, she relates to everyone or everybody relates to her from all that. And so, you know, there's always that, that time we're faced with people and you bring up, you know, actors or directors or times and everybody, well, that's before my time. I never heard of her. I never heard of him. It's not the case with her at all. Everybody has some piece of her that they hold dear. And that's interesting. An interesting um, issue that has sort of come about, for me at least, through this exercise. And I think it's a, it's a useful perspective to have with respect to many issues today. Now, of course, a, a person, a historical person like her, belongs to posterity i mean she's been propelled into the you know into the common memory of our civilization for some reason or another and i wish i could sit here and take credit for it but i can't and watching what is happening around the world 
and how people are reacting to the politics and to the administration errors that we see in, in many countries, including our own, is that we are judging the past from our present perspective. So it's very easy to say, oh, well, they could have done it better. Oh, well, they could have done this or that or whatever. I think it's always important, which is why history is such a valuable uh, uh, tool. For all of its good, bad, and ugly. You can't rewrite it. We can learn from it. We learn to see things, you know, uh, um, from the perspective of where those people were. So when you stand, you know, before the Pietà of Michelangelo or the David, and you realize that he did that without electricity, without, Mm -hmm. you know, candlelight, without heating, without cell phones, without anything, without computers, without measuring devices, and so forth. And therefore, it's very important also that we use that when we try and understand who she was and what kind of perspective she brought to what she was doing in a time where around the world, most women couldn't wear pants or open a bank account uh, without a a man's permission or vote or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And there was no premeditation. You know, in this world, especially in show business now, actors, and there's a premeditation to their career. You know, then you were just prepared for whatever came your way. And you managed to dance, sing, act, you know, speak, pose. I mean, everything was this package of a, of a image. But it wasn't premeditated. It was learned and prepared. Now it's calculated. And it's what makes it so genuine and what makes them so endearing because we see the innocence to to that preparation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I have to make full disclosure that I've known you for many years. This is not an out-of-the-blue interview. <laughs> you were and, there when, when I was born and uh, held me. <laughs> and I'll be there when you die. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> You came into my office, if you recall, going way back, your mother had died. There had been some exchange between you and Swifty Lazar, I think, before that, just because he had made a book deal for your mom, an autobiography deal. Do you want to give a background of who who Swifty is? Swifty was the legendary uh, literary agent in Hollywood. Uh, And why was he legendary, apart from being quite a persona, which some of you may remember seeing photographs of a little bald man with big glasses. But what was extraordinary about him, apart from his good taste and vision and power, is that his agenting worked both ways. Not only did he bring to Hollywood the greatest books that were turned, some of them without a script, into legendary films and some of them starting Humphrey Bogart. But he also exported the stories uh, of Hollywood uh, to New York. So he really was the powerhouse of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. He was uh, Mike Ovitz uh, of the literary world before Mike Ovitz was even born. And he hosted a great party every year at Spago. <laughs> yes. Post-Academy Awards. Post-Academy yes. Award party, yeah. Do you remember you came into my office and you had written 
some pages. And I think it had been a few years maybe after your mom had passed. And you said, I think maybe I'd like to write something about my mom. And you left the pages with me. And do you remember what I said when I called you after I'd read the pages? I said, these are the most beautifully written pages. And that I cried when I read them because you had gone so deep and you'd really pulled sort of emotionally what this meant to you and the passing of your mom. And I said, I think we should publish these. And you were a little doubtful. You weren't sure whether the pages were an entire book. And of course, it was about, I think, 35, 40,000 words. And I said, that's all you need because we're going to put photos with this. And the book did unbelievably well. I know. It has sold a million five copies as we astound each other on an ongoing basis, plus 300,000 unauthorized uh, from uh, six. 50,000 plus editions in China. Right. So we're nearing we're nearing 2 million copies which is unthinkable. Wow. But and certainly not to to my credit as a writer, mostly to the credit of the people who love my mother, but maybe I did hit a note. But just to go back on the story, I, I originally wrote these I was in a in a litigation uh, in New York um, against Diana Maycheck who had uh, come on the uh, Larry King show two weeks following our mother's death, saying that she had the ultimate, uh, you know, sort of tell-all novel that Miss Hepburn had entrusted her from her deathbed. Now, this is after us having heard the, the story at every Christmas, how Swifty would continuously offer mom yet a better deal. I think the last one, I think, was $6 million advance in those days when they had these kinds of advances. Wow. And she kept you know, it's a lot of money, but I had a boring life and uh, nothing really happened. And I have no skeletons in the closet. So when I get found out, they're going to want something about the people around me. And I'm not going to break those, you know, those friendships and those secrets. And so I think that uh, I originally wrote those pages for my children because as our family doctor in Switzerland said, if you live well, you die well. And she certainly did that. Uh, and I wanted, I said, oh, my God, one day um, I, I may not be around forever and my kids won't read. They really wonder who was this woman. And I wanted them to have a piece of paper from their dad who sort of lived through this important time. Hang tight and we'll be right back. Jumping way forward, I mentioned to you that I was going to go to New York and you said, oh, you know, you should go see Emma. <laughs> she's going to school in New York and Emma won't know this, but you know, we set a place to meet for lunch and it was a nice day and nobody was inside, but we were inside and I was waiting in this restaurant for Emma. I hadn't, I don't know if I had seen Emma since you'd lived in Santa Monica. So whatever year that was. And in walks this girl who was so elegant <laughs> and so pulled together. <laughs> and I looked up at her and I thought, Oh my God, look at we've got you could tell that there was a piece of audrey in this girl mm. <laughs> and we sat down and had the most beautiful sort of fun lunch and since then i really feel part of the family because i get to talk oh, to you both are you. alan part of the family <laughs> undoubtedly <laughs> and then i had this great trip with emma to my surprise who got a gig in tokyo and she called me out of the blue and said, would you like to go to Japan with me for the week? 
She said, it's all being paid for by the sponsor. And off we went. And we had an amazing time together. That was so much fun. We got to do round two of that. Yeah. <laughs> you came right off the plane to my house that, that night. Yeah. Remember? I remember. You flew in and then, yeah, because you were back on your way to New York yeah. and you stopped here. And then we had a little we had pe- cocktail you made dinner pizza party at my outside. Yeah. And that was, yeah, I remember. That's that right. That was fun. A name drop now. I remember you brought me back into the kitchen and you showed me your seeded breads and, you know, organic honeys that you were feeding to Brad Pitt because you were cooking for Uh, Brad Pitt at the time. That's right. That's right. Uh, I think it was called Cheyenne Wamprosh or was an old Indian member. It was like a jam sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Your dad cooked for us in Italy at the villa and he made a pasta with uni. That was the first time I've had it. And it was unbelievable. Do you remember that, Sean? Yeah, sure. We had it over over uh, the holidays when Emma came this this year. Yeah, we just yeah. had it together. Wow. I made a version with botarga for New Year's Eve instead. Do you know what botarga is, Joey? No. It's like a dried fish egg thing. It's really very good. Wow. And and what was and how was it prepared? It's I, I it's very similar to how my dad does the uni, but basically it's just a very light sofrito with garlic. Interesting. And then you put everything in raw, chopped up mint, le- chopped up lemon zest with the the juice of the lemon as well, the botarga. Uh-huh. What else, Dad? I think that's really it. It's delicious. Oh, I have to try that. Wow. You always make aglio, aglio, peperoncino right. base for these. Right. Yeah, it's the simplest, the best, because then it, it, uh, you, the flavor of everything you're adding to it, you're tasting. So. Well, let's try that next time we see each other. That sounds really cool. I'm not going to attempt it without you. Yeah. I doubt your guests knew they were getting into dried fish eggs. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart, heart I think. <laughs> now I have to try it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Sean, tell us a little bit about the most recent project that you have undertaken, which I think is maybe our sixth or seventh book together. The third effort uh, to celebrate Granny's 90th birthday, which is a little book that my wife Karen and I co-wrote called Little Audrey's Daydream. Oh, the children's book. Yeah, the children's book. And it was born uh, from something that she used to tell me. You know, she'd say, there was nothing to eat. It was cold. And I just sit in bed and read books and read children's books and draw and wait for the war to be over. And I'd sit sometimes and daydream about what it will be really like, all the things I can do when the war is over. And so from there, we designed, we crafted this story, which has been beautifully illustrated by two legends of the illustration world, the uh, Belgian artists, Dominique Orbasson and her husband, François Avril. Unfortunately, this was Dominique's last work. She had cancer. She knew this would be her last effort, and which uh, makes it even more precious than ever that she left us with this beautiful legacy about yet another legacy. So I wanted something to be more organic and more sort of an extension and for children and for young generations, the generations that she so fervently fought for um, during her last five years as a UNICEF ambassador. Um, and that's how a little Audrey's Daydream was born and is today being sold and published by Princeton Architectural Press. Also want to salute my wife, who is the one who sort of put the long-term thinking uh, into um, Little Audrey's Daydream to make sure that the issues that were being discussed were framed in a way so that they would survive 
the test of time. Uh, she's a, a scholar in, in philosophy and complex system science. And so she sees things very differently than most people do. And, and there's one other thing I want to ask you guys about. Last week we had on uh, Phil Rosenthal, who's a really interesting guy. He was the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. He's now on this food show called Somebody Feed Phil. But we talked about the importance of travel and getting outside the United States and seeing what the rest of the world is like. And Sean, how many languages do you speak fluently? But to be perfectly honest, four and a half. I mean, that four are English, Italian, Spanish, and French. I was educated in French and then switched over to English when I came to America. Well, early on, obviously, we were an English-speaking family. You know, I started speaking Italian with my nanny. We lived in Italy. I spoke Spanish because we had a home in Spain where I spent the summers with my father and the winter you know, on and off. And... Um, and so you know, she started to get me to say, yeah, you have to perfect your English. We're an English-speaking family. So when I was about 10 or 11, she gave me the used-up copies of Time and Newsweek, and that's what I had to read. Oh, interesting, yeah. Imagine reading the news in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, my God. Uh, and and the, 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 the half one is Portuguese. I can speak enough to have a conversation at a dinner party and order in a restaurant and get around in a taxi and check into a hotel. But... Um, I, I cannot write it. I can read it, but I cannot write it. So it's uh, poor well, thing, poor guy. I mean, really. <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, you know what? I, well, in the documentary, what I noticed is your mom does a lot of interviews in different languages. How many? How many languages did your mom speak? The, they were the four that I speak fluently, plus German or Dutch and German because of. Her. And and this is not a, a unique thing if you grow up in Europe because a lot of people move around to different countries there, and that you pick up the languages. Emma, you were initially raised mostly in California, correct? Yes. I mean, I was born in Switzerland and was exposed to French as a young child, even though today it's the language I speak worst of the languages that I do speak (laughs) worst. How many do you speak today? I speak fluently Italian and English, and I guess you could say Spanish. I mean, I couldn't write a book in Spanish, but uh, I can speak Spanish. And... I can get around if I really need to get around in French. I, I definitely can. I can have a conversation, but I, you know, let's not talk about philosophy in French or anything like that. <laughs> uh, before we close out, I think we owe a minute of silence for the inauguration. Did someone die? Oh, the inauguration. No, I think it was absolutely what America, the America that we've always, we've always recognized and what it stands for. And it's not about who won, who didn't win. It's really about the beauty and the circumstance, the pomp and circumstance that our country is back to bringing us hope and a little bit of magistry, which we've lost. Yeah, I thought it was great. And by the way, I, no matter who the president is being inaugurated, I will always watch the inauguration. I don't sit around and throw things at them because it's not maybe the person I voted for. For me, it's about, okay, listen, this shows democracy works and here we are and we're inaugurating a new president. And I loved that, you know, that Clinton and Obama, you know, they're there to sort of honor this transition and hand it over to the next guy. And that was a great reminder of what we need to get back to. Yes, for it's me. very important that this is what the country is about. It's not about a political party. It is about America. And I felt this was great. I felt safe. I felt 
secure and I felt hopeful uh, for tomorrow. Yeah, it was a nice way to lead into 2021 and hopefully the end of this pandemic. And it was a very feel-good event. It was, absolutely. Um, And interestingly, um, the, the recurring theme, or at least for me, is that it's very, very hard to have democracy without culture and even harder if you don't respect it and sort of care for it. It's it's an everyday job, like recycling, like uh, cleaning your teeth, like doing the dishes and taking out the trash. I don't disagree with that. Well, we want to thank you guys for coming on all the way from Italy. It was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Sean. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you've enjoyed our first few episodes, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. As we continue this journey, we're going to be discussing the ins and outs of our jobs so you can learn a little bit more about the publishing industry, the film and TV industry, and Joey's, what do I call it, food service? Food food service, really? (laughs) What do I push a card around? What is this, dim sum Sunday? Food service. I wish you would. If you could just push it around my table. service. If you could push it around my table around 6 p.m. on a Sunday evening. You'll get to learn recipes. You'll get to learn tricks, how to make food presented beautifully, how to taste beautifully. I'm going to serve you I can taste beautifully. Let's do that. No, forget the service part. (laughs) If you have a question or want to hear more about a certain topic, please DM or message us on Twitter, on Facebook, or send us an email at Contact at twoguysfromhollywood.com because we really would love to hear from you. And don't forget to follow us on our social media. We'll be posting recipes, photos, and links from each episode so you can see these lovely recipes <laughs> that Joey pushes around I the hate table. him. <laughs> anyway, speaking of, of other things, next week we have Philip Smith. And he is our, I mean, he's my best friend since I was a child. So I'm Which not going to say he's how many. my second what does that make so him my your best friend? Be, your my best, best friend, friend once law. removed. Your best <laughs> your step best friend. He's your step best friend. So 30 plus years, we've all been pals. And he is, when I tell you that he's probably the smartest person I know, and I do know some smart people, including Alan Nevins. Yeah, but Philip pains me to but say. Let it. me tell you, this guy can tell you what date a person died, when they were born, when they were married, when they bought a diamond. It amazes me the things that his brain can remember. But from Every subject, he's amazing. And also we're going to have on author James McGrath Morris, who is an amazing writer. His reviews are extraordinary. And he's also written a book called Eye on the Struggle, which is about one of the most important figures in the civil rights movement. And nobody knows her name. And it's such a shame, but we're going to bring her up here because she's a hugely important figure. Philip knows her name. Well, of course Philip does. (laughs) So... We'll talk at you soon. Two Guys from Hollywood is hosted, created, and produced by Alan Nevins and Joey Santos. Produced by Lauren Boone. Editing and post-production by Nathan Moody. Music by Luca. Executive produced by Dan Patrick. It is also executive produced by Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella for Workhouse Media. This podcast is a production of Renaissance Literary and Talent and Dan Patrick Productions in association with Workhouse Media. Two Guys from Hollywood is a production of iHeartRadio and the Dan Patrick Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 